Open your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Tonight we will study verses 1 to 23, which is the whole chapter. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, beginning at verse 1 of 2 Chronicles 26. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king had slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. He went out and made war against the Philistines and broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbal and against the Mayonites. The Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt for he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle and fortified them. And he built towers in the wilderness and cut out many cisterns for he had large herds both in the Shephelah and in the plain and he had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands for he loved the soil. Moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war and divisions according to the numbers and the muster made by Jael, the secretary, and Maaseah, the officer, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's commanders. The whole number of the heads of the father's houses of mighty men of valor was 2,600. Under their command was an army of 307,500 who could make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. And Uzziah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, and stones for slinging. In Jerusalem he made engines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper till the day of his death, and being a leper lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham his son was king, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah from first to last, Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, wrote. 
And Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the burial field that belonged to the kings, for they said, He is a leper. And Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. May God be praised through the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for the instruction of all these varied portraits of kings and priests and believers in Judah. And we pray that, Lord, we would become wise to their example and, Lord, that we would find that wisdom in Jesus Christ. You have made him all wisdom unto us. Teach us his ways in your word. We pray in Christ's name, amen. For a baseball fan, few seasons are more frustrating than when your team has a poor quality staff of relievers. If you don't know, a reliever is a pitcher who comes in late in the game. You have the starters, and they're your better pitchers, and they pitch five, six, maybe seven innings. And the reliever comes in, and often the reliever's job is to hold a lead. Now, if you have bad relievers, you spend your entire season in dread, and you have many dreadful experiences in the early innings of the game. Your starting pitcher is striking men out, and you have great acts of valor, home runs and stolen bases. Then the reliever comes in, and it's all gone. You end up losing the game. Every first fans with such a team, and I confess that my beloved Red Sox have had this experience from time to time, like two years ago. There's a dread for the fans. Every hard-earned lead may vanish in a flurry of runs when the reliever comes in. Now, the readers of Second Chronicles experience a similar frustration about the kings of Judah, especially the sequence that is given in chapters 24 to 26. There's something they have in common, and, and that is highlighted by the chronicler. Each of these three kings, Joash, his son Amaziah, and his grandson Uzziah, showed early signs of faith and godliness, but then disappointed later in their lives. Like a team with bad relievers, they started well, but ended poorly and lost. King Joash, you remember, took a loving concern for the repair of God's temple. And yet he ended his life abandoning God's house to worship idols. Amaziah won a victory by listening to God's prophet, only to have that same prophet announce his destruction at God's hands. Maybe most painful of all is the record of King Uzziah, for the simple reason that his long reign was so remarkably blessed by the Lord. Uzziah was the king whose death was so unnerving to young Isaiah in Isaiah 6 that he was so anxious that such a man was no longer king that he stumbled into the house of the Lord seeking solace. That was the night he received his commission, his calling as a prophet. So what happened to mighty Uzziah? Well, the answer is that God made him strong and strength made him proud. The king whose faith brought so much blessing to God's people committed an act by pride that was so faithful, faithless that the Lord struck him with an affliction that caused him to spend the rest of his life as an outcast. The story of Uzziah who rose by faith and fell through pride urges every believer to heed the warning of Hebrews 3.14. Let us hold with confidence to the end the faith we had at the beginning. Well, Uzziah began reigning in Judah when his father, King Amaziah, was taken a prisoner by the army of Israel. 
The chronicler makes note his age twice. Usually when something's repeated, there's a, an emphasis there. He was 16 when he came to the throne. His mother's also given. Jechaliah of Jerusalem, that's good. That means he was not the son of a foreign wife. They've had that problem recently. And he reigned for 52 years from roughly 787 B.C. to 736 B.C. By the way, his reign overlapped with Jeroboam II of the northern kingdom of Israel, probably the greatest king, king of the northern king. He was also strong and successful. And those two kings maintained peace with one another, allowing both nations to flourish in a golden age of strength and prosperity. I did quick mental math. 52 years ago, Richard Nixon was president. Now, you may not want that. But imagine if all your life this one man had been president, if you're younger than 52, as many are here at least, uh, your entire life. But he, and he was the greatest king in memory. Oh, what a blessing his was. The, the death of both kings, Jeroboam II in the north and Uzziah in the south, was seen as the end of an era. And it was. Because trouble was brewing in the ancient Near East, namely Tiglath-Pileser, the mighty ruler of Assyria, was building that dreadful army that would make a waste of so many nations. Israel and Judah needed strong kings. Now, there's an ambiguous commendation on his early days in verse 4. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, that's good. That's the standard commendation, mainly of a king who observed the true religion, who did not worship at altars, who went to the temple and supported the, the temple cult in their God-given rituals. That's the commendation. What's the ambiguity? The words, as his father Amaziah had done. Amaziah was not a sterling example of these things. Amaziah had only been reluctantly godly, and then he was ungodly altogether. Now the record will end up presenting Uzziah in a much better light than his father until the very end of his life. And this is in large part, we find, owing to a, the influence of a spiritual mentor. The chronicler brings strong praise in saying that Uzziah set himself to seek the Lord. Now, if you've been following along in Chronicles, you know that's the, the central theme of the book. That's what you're supposed to do. Seek the Lord. I, 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 over and over we see that. Seek the Lord with all your heart. And he did that. And he did so under the tutelage of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God, verse 5. Now, some commentators assume that this Zechariah is the son or grandson, more likely, of the high priest Zechariah, Zechariah who Uzziah's, Uzziah's grandfather, Joash, had wrongfully put to death. It makes sense that it would have been the high priest. We don't know that. But it, if that was the case, the legacy of the first Zechariah is seen in this Zechariah. And he has a great influence on the young king. Now, Uzziah set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Now, that's what we need to be taught. The royal scion was shown reverent faith in the Lord. There was a mentor. There was an example. There was a tutor. And this played a role in the, in the prosperity of the whole nation. Because he sought the Lord, and verse 5 says, God made him prosper. Now, this chapter highlights three key areas in which Uzziah's long reign, through faith, received remarkable blessing from the Lord. The first was the Lord's blessing in the realm of warfare. A number of campaigns are cited here, the success of which greatly improved the nation's security. 
Now, first are his attacks to the west. That's where the Philistines lived. They'd been a threatening and troublesome power going back to the early days of the Davidic kingdom. And we read in verse 6 that Uzziah went out and made war against the Philistines and broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod, and he built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. Now, this issue of breaking down walls was important in those days. Remember that Uzziah's father had lost a needless battle to the army of the northern kingdom, and the northern king, Joash, had come down and broken down a section of the wall of Jerusalem. What was the point? It was to render render them vulnerable. It was to put them on the heels. It was to to take away, really, their opportunity for aggressive and, and, and offensive warfare because they could not leave their city Undefended. This was the way to neutralize a threatening power. And this now is what Uzziah does to the Philistines in the West. He's vigorous, he's able, and notice how quickly, boy, what a difference leadership makes. He restores what had been a very poor military situation, and already it's becoming a very good one. Now you recognize the names of Gath and Ashdod. They are two of the five famous fortress cities of the Philistines. Jabna, it turns out, was a fortress that was closer to Judah and was the launching point for Philistines' attacks into the western lands of Judah. Well, Uzziah conquered these places. He broke down their walls. He stifled their military initiative. Moreover, he settled Jewish people in and near these lands. What was he doing? He was creating a buffer zone. So he's being blessed in warfare. This This is called victory. He's put a buffer zone in, and so there's not going to be an imminent threat from this quarter. He also, verse 7, assailed the Arabians. Now, that's to the southwest, just south of there, in Gerbaal and against the Mayunites. That gives even more security. He's providing a real security on their vulnerable western flank. Now, by the way, he also gains control of the vital north-south caravan route, called the, the Great Truck Road, even today. And he provides immense advantages in terms of his country's international commerce. Well, well done, Uzziah, but we're not done. He goes east then, and soon the Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah. Here's an, his, you remember his father had won a victory over the Ammonites, but now he's going, to, he's going to capitalize on that. In fact, the chronicler gives special priority. He does it by putting it in verse 2. On what seems to have been Uzziah's greatest conquest, the restoration of Eloth, which was a vital port on the Red Sea. Now, if you remember from way back earlier, it was Solomon who'd who'd captured that. And because they had a port on the Red Sea and they had connected that land, they were able to launch ships, merchant ships, not only to the west, but also to the rich kingdoms, the merchant cities of the east. That city was not long, was not often held by Judah. In fact, it was lost by Uzziah's grandson, Ahaz. And Uzziah's military reputation, therefore, began growing, and it had a major impact on the security of the, of the nation as well as its economic potential. And so verse 8 said, The king's face, fame spread even to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. Moreover, his military success was a reflection, we are told, of his piety towards the Lord. Verse 7, God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbaal and against the Mayunites. Let me say, if if this is all Uzziah had done, if he only had these military exploits, he would have gone down as one of the greatest kings of the the middle portion of the kingdom of Judah. He, He provided decades of peace 
and renewed prosperity. But that's not all he did because he's also shown here, blessed by the Lord, as a remarkably determined builder primarily of Jerusalem. Now here again, the disaster his father left him, left the kingdom in a sorry condition with a large section of the walls of Jerusalem broken down. Now these are large walls. So he comes to power in this situation and he gets hard at work on providing a remedy. Look at verse 9. Uzziah built towards towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle and he fortified them. Now what's interesting is that Centuries later, after Nebuchadnezzar has destroyed the city and burned it and torn down virtually all the wall, when you get to the book of Nehemiah, these gates are, are, are mentioned. So these were solid. He did quality work. These, at least, I'm sure they were heavily damaged. They had to be restored. But each one of these items mentioned here is mentioned. One of them is mentioned in Zechariah 14. The others are mentioned in Nehemiah chapters 2 and 3. And so with leadership like this and a builder like Uzziah, well, the city wasn't vulnerable all that long. It was made stronger than before. Now, the Bible elsewhere indicates that during the reign of Uzziah, there was a devastating earthquake that hit the city. Amos chapter 1, verse 1, and explicitly Zechariah 14, 5, speaks of the people fleeing the city because of the earthquake during Uzziah's realm. And no doubt, much of his labor was directed at reconstructing the city. He didn't sit around pouting. He got the builders out. They were, the stonemasons were out, and they built the city. But it's clear that he also took a, clean, a keen personal interest in these projects. He showed a, a high degree of talent. Look at verse 15, a very unusual note. In Jerusalem, he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. Now, archaeologists and historians argued that the first catapult was invented around 400 B.C., but the Bible reader might beg to differ. At least this little Archimedean figure, who's the king of Judah, and this great conqueror, who's also a master engineer, he's got something like that going. He's launching boulders off the towers of Jerusalem. He's giving firepower. He strengthened the walls of God's city. What a success he was. But look at verses 10. This is wonderful. He takes great delight in the agriculture of the region. He didn't just build cities. He built an, an economic structure. He built towers in the wilderness. He cut out many cisterns, for they had large herds. Remember, cisterns are big water supplies out in the barren areas. Why? So that flocks could be there, both in the Shephelah and in the plain. He had farmers and vine dressers in the, heel, in the hills and in the fertile lands. Now, it turns out that there is a significant amount of archaeological evidence that attests to this rural development. They are constantly, some guy's kicking over a stone, and there's some inscription to Uzziah or one of the officials listed in the Bible. They were building stuff, and that stuff is being found even today. In fact, the chronicler makes a very touching commendation in verse 10 that shows that there's a spirituality to his building and to his farming for Uzziah loved the soil. What a fine thing to be said about a conquering building king of Judah. What a rare man and king with wide-ranging interests. What a gift of God's goodness and grace to Jerusalem. And these secular interests did not seem to have come at the expense of his spirituality. Matthew Henry writes that Uzziah's best fortification of Jerusalem was not the walls, but his close adherence to the worship of God. 
It was the neglect of worship that had caused the city to fall in prior times. And in fact, not since the days of Solomon, really, had known at Jerusalem, known a king of such talents and such a spirit. It signaled the Lord's special blessing on his people. In building, as in war, this was a reflection of his faith in the Lord. As a result, verse 15 says, his fame spread for he was marvelously helped. It was God who helped him till he was strong. We're still not done because Uzziah also displays vigor and talent in administration, warfare, building, economic development, administration, particularly in reorganizing the army of Judah, verse 11. Moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war in divisions according to the numbers in the muster made by Jael, the secretary, and Maaseiah, the officer, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's commanders. Now, prior to this, it's essentially a militia army. There is probably usually a mercenary force, often of foreigners, in the capital, his bodyguards, his, his shock troops, Mostly army is regular Judean people and they, they're amateur warfares and, and they're brought forth. The local town sends out their captain and out they go. But there's a change that is taking place now under this king. He's organizing the army under central administration and royal command. And the reason for this is not hard to find. Look at the number given. It seems like a large army, but it's actually not. 307,500. Now remember, Jehoshaphat fielded over a million. His father, Amaziah, had 350,000, and that was so low, he hired ungodly mercenaries. Uzziah, he, oh, he has a much smaller force, and so he believes that when one does not have quantity, one had better have quality, and that's what he does. And so they're going to be well-trained, they're going to be well-organized, they're going to be professionally led. He saw they were properly armed and equipped, verse 14. He gave for the army shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, stones for slinging. He, he creates an effective, competent, what today we would call a combined armed battle force. Now, based on this reorganization and effective administration, verse 13 says, Judah's army could make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. Well, no wonder young Isaiah was despondent when this king finally got old and died. Andrew Stewart writes, Uzziah was a man of many interests. He was successful in both warlike and peacetime activities. He could tear down but he also could build up. This is a remarkable leader. And he sets an outstanding example for Christians today. We should often think of Jesus' parable of the talents, Matthew 25. And Jesus points out, it's not what you have, it's what you do with what you have. And one person was given five talents, another two, another one. That's what he says. And what matters is what they did with it. And the one servant, he, he had five talents, he made five more. He was busy about the Lord's work. He was using his gifts, his resources, his opportunities. Another had two talents, he earned two more. And Jesus said to them both, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well, based on his contributions in war, in building, in ministration, Uzziah might express, expect a rich praise from his Lord. And yet, that's not how his story ends. Uzziah was free from the kinds of failures that led other men to failure. Certainly, he could not be accused of sloth. Nor does he have any evidence of having the great sin of King David, which was his lust. 
that got him into so much trouble. What was it for Uzziah? You know, it's always something. There is something against each of us needs to guard our character. And in the, in the case of this great man, the problem was pride. Oh, what a sad note in verse 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. You know, many successful people for whom weakness is never an issue discover that their strength, that the very success they've labored for becomes a snare that leads them into an overreaching folly. They become proud. And now we're at the end of Uzziah's life. He's ruled brilliantly for decades. He, he gained the awe not only of the surrounding world, but undoubtedly of his own people. And he thought that every honor should be paid to him. He thought that every task was one for which he was qualified. And in particular, he cast his eye from the palace to the temple. Oh, watch your eyes. For David, it was watching Bathsheba bathing. For Uzziah, it was looking across from the palace where the king ruled to the temple where the priest served. And he spied the splendor of the religious cult, and it all was denied to him. It became for him yet another venue for conquest. And so verse 16 says, He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now Uzziah's expressive nature must have wondered, many times he must have lied awake at night and says, I wonder what it's like in there. Wow, Solomon's temple. The holy of holies, the, the golden lampstands, the tables of showbread, the altar of incense. You know, that was the item closest to the veil of the holy of holies where the priest would take the aromatic spices and he would pour them on the fire. And, and as praise going up to the Lord and as prayers offered, he, he would see the incense go up to God. Why should he, so great a king, not have that privilege? Why should he, for prayer, need the mediation of the priests? And so his heart burned to enter the priestly sanctum to draw forth that sacred incense with his own hand, to watch with his own eyes the smoke waft up in its richness as an offering before the living God. Well, from the beginning of the Old Covenant, here's the problem. God had granted the privilege First, of entering the tabernacle, and now the temple, the holy place, the inner sanctum, the courts anybody could go in, the court of the women, the court of the men. But then the holy place was for the priests only. And then the sacrifices were to be offered, not merely by the clan of Levi, but by the members of the priestly family of the first high priest Aaron, and them alone. Now, what's going on there? Well, first of all, it shows the holiness of the Lord in his worship. One lineage only was set apart to do nothing but this. Why? Because it's so holy a work. No one else may do it, and they were devoted only to this. But there's also a separation of powers in which the royal house and the priestly line would serve as a check on one another. The secular ruler was not to govern the, the sacred place. First Chronicles 23.13 records the original institution Aaron was set apart to dedicate the most holy things that he and his sons forever should make offerings before the Lord and minister to him and pronounce blessings in his name forever. But in the, pro in the pride of his soaring prestige, 
Uzziah wanted that privilege too. Not content with royal status, not content with his military and construction and administrative achievements, he presumed in his pride to usurp the ironic role. And little did he realize how his intrusion into the Lord's holy precincts would be an insult to the holiness of a higher king, of the living God. However, there was help for him. The high priest named Azariah seemed to have realized what was going on. He had some advanced warning. Maybe he saw the king making his march. Maybe you wonder, we're not told. I suspect that he would have put on the priestly garments. I mean, wouldn't he have done that? He, He would have done that. Maybe Azariah saw him coming. And very blessedly, he went in after Uzziah with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor, verse 17. Well, he finds Uzziah in the holy place and the incense already in his hand. And we read in verse 18, they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Now, let me just say, for this act of valor, and it was high valor, this was a dangerous man, for this God-honoring zeal, I just want to point out that this man, Azariah, his name is recorded forever in the holy book. Forever and ever, God's word will will record his deed of valor and faith and devotion to the Lord. Because Uzziah was not a man who was used to being withstood. But the priest spoke with a boldness that was born of biblical conviction. Verse 18, go out of the sanctuary for you have done wrong and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Now one of the problems and certainly perils of pride is how it clouds the judgment. You notice in the Bible when these great men fall, there's usually some effort by the Lord. It's a grace by the Lord to put a barrier in their way. And here it's the best kind of barrier. It's a godly man speaking the truth of God's word. Let me say, when you and I feel our our flesh getting up with desires we ought not to have, and someone comes to us in love, and and by the way, there seems to be a, 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 a respectfulness about Azariah's conduct here, Amaziah's conduct. When that person speaks the word of God to us, that is where the moment of decision is. Oh, let us pray that in times of temptation, when the word of God is spoken to us lovingly, respectfully, that we would not do what Uzziah does, because it is now and not before. He is not stricken by God when he enters. He's not stricken when he takes the incense in his hand. It's when he high-handedly rejects the word of God spoken to him by a man called to minister that word. It reminds us of the importance of how we hear the sermons that are preached in the church. It is when the Bible is preached, it is not the minister, it is God who speaks. Well, unfortunately, Uzziah verse 19 was angry. There he is holding in his hand the incense censer. He had so long imagined grasping it and he became angry verse 19 with the priests. And it was at that point that the Lord struck him in judgment. We read, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord. And, and, and here's this detail. By the altar of incense. Oh, Uzziah's dream so quickly became a nightmare. He's standing before the altar of incense. He's right at the veil of the Holy of Holies. 
I think he's almost certainly dressed in the priestly garb. And at that moment, leprosy breaks out upon his head. He's suddenly afflicted with a skin ailment that marked a man as especially unfit for the presence of God. And the priests are horrified. Verse 19, and Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in the forehead. Now, by the way, I think it's interesting. The Lord doesn't cover him with leprosy. He just puts a little patch of it on a visible place. His purpose was not to destroy him, but to shame him to punish him in a way that corresponded to his presumption. And so stricken, the undone conqueror meekly followed. He, his resistance is gone. The priest rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him, verse 20. Well, Uzziah's example warns every believer against pride, which the Bible consistently links, links to another word. That word is destruction. So it is in this passage, pride and destruction. Oh, what a great price the great king paid because he presumed a privilege God had denied him. Let us learn to submit the boundaries of our lives, the things that we cannot do, that we neither will do nor will we desire to do. And he remains marked by leprosy the the remainder of his life. Verse 21, he lived in a separate house. He was excluded from the house of the Lord. He, He foolishly sought to exalt himself before the Lord in pride. Notice he not only did not gain the privilege he was usurping, he thereby lost the privileges he formerly had enjoyed. He could no longer even go to the temple courts. He was never allowed in in the temple, but he was allowed to stand with the people. In the courts, no longer. Moreover, he could no longer remain in control of the state. Verse 21, but Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, governing the people of the land. Oh, how greatly one man's life may be impacted by a single sin. This warning biblically is especially made to strong and successful men. I'm not trying to exempt the women, but the Bible will especially single this out to highly placed and strong men. Of course, David comes to mind. His great sin with Bathsheba and then what happened with her husband Uriah and the, and, and the murder he arranges. And you will say, well, well, hold on, David's forgiven of that sin. Psalm 51 and all that. Oh, and he is. Praise the Lord for forgiveness. But his kingdom is never the same. He's never the same. He's never the same David again. Second Samuel 20, 11, and then 12 marks a decisive event in his, his life from which he never in this life recovers. It, it, it's, it's chastisement from God. It's, it's Amnon, and it's Absalom, and it's Adonijah after that. He ends up a shell of the person that he is. Yes, he's forgiven but the sin devastated his life. Now, Uzziah's sin, his temptation, did not run in that direction. But his sin was no less grievous. By his pride, he presumed against God's word. He committed sacrilege in the holy place. And because of that, he was sealed. It seems what they did was they built a royal wing to the palace. And he was quarantined in that wing. This, this vigorous man is quarantined the rest of his life until he died. Even in death, his disgrace marks his legacy. We read in verse 23, 
When he slept with his fathers, they buried him with his fathers in the burial field that belongs to the kings. What's going on there? Well, there's honor being given to him. He's placed in the field where the kings are buried. But he's not buried with the kings. He's not actually in the sepulcher. His bones are kept in a separate place. Because he fell into pride, this king of such greatness, such greatness of spirit, such mighty achievement, such an impact, Here's the epitaph he gets, spoken by the priests, for they said, he is a leper. He is a leper. Well, dare I say, the account of this great but prideful king provides rich lessons for us. And briefly, the first of them is a reinforcement and proof of what the Reformed tradition has called the regulative principle of worship. People will question, who decides what we do? What does the church do when we gather for worship? And it is an opinion from the scriptures, not an opinion. It's a biblical teaching and conviction that the person who decides what happens in the worship of the Lord in his house is the Lord himself. The regular principle says that what we do in the worship service will be the things that God has told us to do, either by direct preaching, things like the preaching of the word, the offering of prayers, but also relevant examples in scripture clear biblical principles. We worship the way God tells us to worship. Some of you, you've all heard me say this in one way or another. That's because we're a consumer-driven church. We have a target audience, and it's a target audience that decides. And the target audience, the consumer group to whom we worship is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is the consumer. We want God to be pleased. He determines what praises him. We worship according to to his word. And, and the fall of King Uzziah, this great godly man, proves how seriously the Lord defends his prerogative in determining the manner of his worship. Andrew Stewart writes, God has made his wishes clear in his word, and there are no details that have slipped his mind. If God had wanted innovative styles of sacrifice, he would have said so. If he had wanted Uzziah to minister at the altar, he would have made it clear. Instead, he made the prohibition certain. And so Uzziah joins a line of mostly godly men who foolishly transgressed it. You think of the sons of of Aaron, the first priest, Nadab and Abihu, uh, Leviticus 10. They brought strange fire before the Lord. I don't know what it was, but it was some innovative improvement on the otherwise dull and dreary rituals God had given. And the Lord smote them before his altar. Then there's Uzzah, poor Uzzah. Remember Uzzah from 2 Samuel 6? David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant up to the city on a cart. He hasn't consulted the word of the Lord. And this poor servant sees the Ark of the Covenant tottering on the cart. And so he puts his hand on the Ark to steady it and God strikes him dead. Oh, why would God do that? Because that object was holy and Uzzah was not. We must worship in the way that God has told us. Notice as well. The example of this priest, Amaziah, he sets an example particularly for ministers of the gospel and for elders in the church that we are to have this kind of zeal in defending the worship of God's God's church. That it is those entrusted, he's the high priest, he's entrusted with the temple worship. Today it's the ministers, it's the elders of the church. We are to ensure that the worship of the church is in accordance with the word of God. John Calvin says it greatly emphasizes God's sovereignty 
when we allow him to tell us what we can do and what we cannot do in worship. In fact, I love how Calvin, once he points out that uh, the, the mere fact, when we realize what our hearts are like, the mere fact that a worship practice seems exciting to us should make us highly suspicious. We should see what God desires, and it is the job of the elders to ensure it. Now, notice as well that Uzziah's example shows that secular authorities have no rights or privileges when it comes to the church and its teaching and its worship. Another big point being made, it's the secular ruler who will not have power over the sanctuary. It is Christ's church. Andrew Melville made this point to James I of Scotland. He was also James VI of England. And old James, his favorite theme was the divine right of kings. He was king. God made him king. He could do anything he wanted. In fact, he, through his control of the bishops, he usurped the authority of the church. He perverted the worship. He, by the way, this is the James of the King James Bible. That's its own story, but that's, that's him. And uh, it was Andrew Melville who said this to him. Sir, I must tell you there are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is Christ Jesus the king, and his kingdom is the kirk whose subject King James is, and of whose kingdom he is not king, not a lord, not a head, but only a member. Uzziah forgot this principle born of God's sovereignty over his church. As need requires, we must cause our secular authorities to remember it today. We must not yield to the authority of kings and princes and presidents and governors and councils and legislators to pervert the teaching of the word of God or the worship of God's people. Now, secondly, and this is one of the main lessons of this passage, is that God helps those who fear him. Now, you've heard the adage, which in fact is not in the Bible. It says God helps those who help themselves. That is not what this passage shows. It shows that God helps those who fear him. And really the key to the whole passage, other than the ending, is the beginning. This is a young man who was nurtured in the fear of the Lord. What's the fear of the Lord? Reverence for God. A sense that God's word bears divine authority, that we must believe what God has said. We dare not sin against the Lord because he's a high and holy king. He was nurtured in the fear of the Lord. It is not by chance that we read over and over in this passage, and the Lord helped him. He became strong because the Lord helped him. He was victorious because God helped him. As long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Verse 5, verse 15, his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. There's a key relationship between godliness and true greatness. You know, I think it's a very touching scene. In some respects, the hero of the whole passage is this man who's only barely mentioned, Zechariah. Because in that formative age, he's 16 years old, he becomes king, but he had a godly spiritual mentor probably high priest, something like that at least. He set up a godly example. He inspired him with the, with the power and the truth of God's word. He molded him. Oh, one of the, In fact, the best thing we can do for our young people, we are so determined to give them a high-quality education, and I'm not against that in the least. God so often makes use of a quality education. Christians should educate our children. We should provide them skills and experiences, but none of that will compensate for the essential thing that we raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, those baptismal vows that parents make. But there's others. There's mentors in the church. What a thing it is to be an inspiration to the boys and girls of the church. 
who knows what lifelong fruits, because, because God will help them. God will make their lives fruitful. Oh, what a blessing is the ministry this shows to young people. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, and he instructed him in the fear of God, and he was mightily helped. Now, thirdly, as the way to avoid the pride that led Uzziah to destruction is to embrace the Bible's call to humble service to the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we avoid, if, if, if God's given us gifts, if we've had success, if people respect us and, and we're used to acting and having our way, what's the best way to protect ourselves? It is always to make ourselves in our own hearts and minds the humble servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. My favorite example, I'll do it briefly, is John the Baptist. One of my favorite sermons to preach before ministers, I've done it somewhere. I preached it at Zeke Dean's installation. It was the end of John chapter 3. And John the Baptist's acolytes are complaining because people are leaving him and they're going to that upstart, Jesus of Nazareth. And John says this, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Verse 27, what does he say? Look, I am who I am. I'm doing the ministry God has given me. It is enough for me to do that with all my heart. None of us needs to to be the, the, the Lord of all things. We don't need to have every gift. We don't need to have every ministry. We need to know what our ministry is. Know yourself in that sense. What are my gifts? What is my calling? What is the setting God's placed me in to receive it gratefully from the Lord? And then to offer our labor to his blessing and glory. John says at the end, here's the rule. He must increase, I must decrease. He speaks here of the joy he has in serving Jesus the bridegroom as he takes his bride. Here's our defense against the sin of pride, particularly for those with gifts, particularly those who've had success. Make it our joy and our privilege, the desire of our hearts to serve Jesus, that he would be exalted. It will protect us from pride. Well, let me conclude with a comment that I feel is necessary about how the end of, what the end of Uzziah's life tells us about the assurance of our salvation. Oh, what? How many things Uzziah lost. But did he lose his soul? Did, 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 and here's the question. We have a record of, of a man serving for 52 years. And somewhere towards the end, maybe with two years left, he commits a sin, something like that. And this is how he ends. When I was in the army, we had a cynical statement that was true of certain commanders that went like this. One all shucks wipes out a thousand attaboys. Is that what Uzziah teaches? Is that what God's going to do to you? You serve him for all your life? You slip up at the end? Well, first of all, this is not a minor slip up. As a, as a larger catechism tells us, sins are magnified when they're people of great responsibility to whom much has been entrusted. And it was a great, scandalous offense before the Lord. That is partly why it received such a strong rebuke. But what do we to think about Uzziah? Did he go to heaven after this? Well, let me say that the priests seem to have thought so. So did the prophet Isaiah. We're not told the details of it, but I love this little line uh, in verse 22. That the rest of his acts, oh, Isaiah, the son of Amos, the prophet, wrote a little book about Uzziah. I think we can rest our concerns about the state of his soul. But what about us? Are we to live our lives like a baseball team with a bad relieving staff, fearing that there's going to be some late-inning collapse that's going to cause us to lose the game? 
We're going to commit some great sin. Do I need to live in dread about uh, uh, giving myself into this or that and it's all going to be lost? Well, first of all, let us fear sin because the temporal consequences are very real. And it's true that by a single sin, we can, we can ruin our families. We can put an end to our ministries. We can leave a scar upon our ministries or our lives. But for all that, we can have confidence if we will do this, if we will entrust the care of our souls and our eternal life to the unfailing King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the wonderful statements of the New Testament that tell us this, that Jesus will not fail in the end. Jesus is not a relief pitcher. He's a starting pitcher. And he's the relief pitcher. He's the middle relief. He's the whole staff. But when he comes, he comes and he saves, and he is mighty to save. And what does Paul say? I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. You commit your soul to Jesus Christ. You may make a mess of your life. Please don't learn from the the example of Uzziah, but Jesus will not fail you. I love 1 Peter 1, 4-5 that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being kept through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. If you are trusting in the Lord Jesus and the word of God and his gospel, God by his power is keeping you safe against all the folly that might very well make a complete shipwreck of your soul. But if you are truly in Christ, you are saved and you are safe. Because what did Jesus tell us? Well, he told us John 10, 27 to 29. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Are you doing that? Do you hear in the gospel that Jesus has called you? Do you know him as your savior? Are you following him? Well, Jesus says this, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My father who is greater, who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hands. Oh, do not believe the story of Uzziah says that in Christ you are anything but safe forever. But it so happens, and I'll conclude with this, that the way to have a true assurance of salvation by following Jesus, hearing his voice, exulting in his all-sufficiency, that is also the best way to keep your heart humble. Put all your trust in Jesus. Have all of your joy in serving him. Make it all of your ambition, and this ultimately your only ambition, that in all things he would have glory. And then, consulting the word of God, take to heart the words of the Apostle Peter, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he will exalt you. Father, we thank you for the account of Uzziah. We believe he's your beloved son, and he was a great one of your servants. But Lord, he also gives us a great warning. And so, Father, particularly if we think that we're strong Christians, cause us not to be proud, cause us not to be unwary, cause us not to, not to think that sin can no longer trip us up. No, no, Lord. Let us take to heart your calling to walk in sincerity of faith. Let us hate and fear sin as much at the end of our lives than as at the beginning of our walk with Jesus. But, Father, we thank you that Jesus is the King who will never fail us, and he will save us to the end. 
give us that humility of John the Baptist that says, here's what I want. I want him to be exalted. And if I must be humbled, that is all the better. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.